Psalm 73, and we're going to begin by reading verses 25 through 28, and you follow along and listen as we read the scripture. The Bible says, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. To draw near to God is to have a relationship with God that is intentional. It's to have a relationship with God uh, in which uh, I live my life with Him at the center. Everything else revolves around Him. It's a life that is marked by worship and by obedience and by faithfulness. This is the kind of life that God has called us to live. It's what we were created to enjoy, this kind of growing and personal relationship. But before we talk about obedience and faithfulness and worship, it's important that we start somewhere. If you're going to have a growing relationship with God, you have to have a personal relationship with God. Before we say anything else, it's important to say this. If you're here, and if I were to ask you, do you know God? Do you have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ? If you can't answer that question, then where it starts for you is faith in Jesus. Can I tell you this morning that God loves you? That He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you? And He shed His blood, and He was buried, and He rose again for you. And I'm, and I'm here to tell you that God, in His love, has made a way for you to be redeemed from your sins. And before you can have a growing relationship, an alive relationship with God, you have to have a personal relationship. That comes through faith in Jesus. And so to anyone who may not believe that's here today, I want to invite you to believe in Jesus and be saved. It's the greatest thing that could happen in your life. And it will start you on this journey of following Jesus. So if you're not saved, you need to get saved. But for those of you that are here and you say, I believe, I am a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then I can't think of a better way to challenge ourselves as we find ourselves here at the start of a new year than with this challenge. May we draw near to God in 2024. May we be closer to Him in 2024 than we've ever been. May we have a relationship with Him that is marked by worship and obedience. May we have that kind of life. There are lots of places we could go to uh, talk about this, but we find ourselves today in the 73rd Psalm. There's a lot, it's interesting about the 73rd Psalm, but the most interesting probably is who wrote it or who we believe was the human author of the 73rd Psalm. See, for the majority of the Psalms, which are a collection of songs and poems and prayers that were written over a certain period of Israel's history, and there were several authors, the one who wrote the most was David. We know David. He's a a familiar character, even those that may not be as familiar with the Bible. David's a familiar character. About 73 or so, we believe, were written by David, so a majority. Second place behind David is anonymous, right? There are about 49 or 50. We're not really sure with any degree of certainty who the human author was. We know they were breathed out by the Holy Spirit, but we don't know who the human author was. So you've got David, you've got anonymous, and then you've got a distant third behind anonymous, a guy named Asaph, sometimes pronounced Asaph. And Asaph, or Asaph, is believed to have written at least 11, maybe 12. In fact, Psalm 73 is the beginning of a run of psalms that are attributed to him. And there's not a lot that we know about him. One interesting thing about his life, for sure, is that during the reign of King David, he was a chief musician. 
If you're curious as to what that means, it's an interesting study. That's not for our purposes today, but he was the chief musician. For our purposes, we're just going to recognize him for what he was. He was just an ordinary person like you and me, trying to be faithful to his God. And so when we read here in Psalm 73, he makes this statement, it's good for me to draw near to God. Where I need to be, the best place for me to be is close to God. And when you read that, I don't know that there's anybody here that would say, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, who's going to disagree with that. It's a good thing to be close to God. It's good to experience his presence. It's good to worship and obey him and be faithful. It is good for me to draw near to God. That is the best place for me to be. And I don't know anyone here that would disagree. That's the best place for me to be. But beyond that statement, what we've read from Psalm 73 might be hard for us to relate to. Because while we can agree it's good for me to draw near to God, the truth is, when I read the rest of these verses, it sounds a lot like a guy who's just got it all together, doesn't it? It sounds like a guy who just, he has such a relationship with God. I mean, what does he say? Who do I have on earth to desire besides you? Man, who does this guy think he is? Right? I struggle all the time, but here he is bragging about how much he loves his God. He's so humble. He says, my heart fails, my flesh fails, but you're my portion. We read these verses and we're, we might be tempted to read it and think, well, yeah, I know I, I want to be close to God. I'm a believer. I want to be close to God. But I'll be honest, where I am right now and where that sounds like, I'm nowhere near that. And so it's discouraging a little bit, right? But when you read Psalm 73, when you go back to the beginning and read to the end, what you find out is that the story is a little more complicated than that. It's a little bit messier than that. It's a story that sounds a whole lot more like my story and a whole lot more like your story. Because far from being somebody who's got it all together, we're going to see that Asaf is a man who struggles, who, who experiences the difficulty of what it is to live in a sinful and broken world. He wants to be close to God. He wants to have that kind of relationship like so many in this room do. But it wasn't without challenge and struggle. And so what we want to do is we want to go back and work our way up and see just what it means to draw near to God. We go back to the beginning and we start in verse number one. And some of you are going to be skeptical right off the bat, right? Because we're going to read verse one and you're going to think, this sounds a whole lot like where we ended. But stick with me, right? Psalm 73 and verse number one. The Bible says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. You say, there he goes again, bragging about God. He's just got it all together. But it's important to understand that what he's about to do is he's about to compare that God, that good and faithful and holy God, a God who blesses his children, a God who blesses those who give their life to him. He's about to compare that God. And he's going to compare that God to himself. And it goes about as well as you would expect it to go. Right? He's about to contrast this good and faithful God with him. And him is not good. In fact, there's a great truth to be learned when we think about the connection between the end of the psalm and the beginning of the psalm. We read a few moments ago, he said, it's good for me to draw near to God. Why is it good? There are lots of reasons, but one reason is because God is good. One reason that it's good to draw near to God is because God is good. Ultimately, my relationship with God is because of the faithfulness and goodness of God. I don't, I don't get to God on my own. I don't stay there on my own. I'm not going to get to glory on my own. It's all because of the goodness and faithfulness of God. And aren't you thankful that it's not dependent upon you and it's not dependent upon me? If it were my faithfulness, if it were my consistency, I would be in a world of trouble. But it's not me. It's because of his goodness and his faithfulness. And so what he's about to do is he's about to say, I need to draw close to God, but it's not an easy thing to do. And what I need 
what I need to understand is that part of getting close to God, it's a struggle, but it's surrender. And that's what we want to see, the struggle and the surrender. And hopefully some of what we look at today, God will work in your heart through his word, and you go into this new year, and you'll determine, I'm going to be closer to God. So let's talk about the struggle. This is where most of us are, right? The psalmist describes what he's experiencing in his life. He's about to make this comparison. There's God. He's good and faithful. And then there's me. And here's how he describes it. He's struggling. Psalm 73, verse 2, he says, but as for me, right, there's the contrast. My feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He says, as for me, I can't seem to get my act together, right? Uh, he, he uses this analogy of losing his footing. If you're a sports fan or if you're a football fan, uh, you've been watching a football game and there's nothing quite as hilarious as that moment when an offensive player breaks free and he's heading uh, home free for the end zone and there's nothing between him and the end zone and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they just start to fall over. Nobody touched them, nothing happened, and they just start to fall over, and then they try to regain their balance. Have you ever seen that? There's nothing more hilarious than them trying to regain their balance because they're flopping around, and they look like they're crazy, and the next thing you know, they're flat on their face. And then you go back, and you see a replay, and you'll notice, like, what happened? Nobody was anywhere close to them. Nobody touched them. And what you see is they're running along, and just for a brief second, for a brief moment, they just turn back. Somebody coming up, is somebody going to get me? Am I going to get hit? And they take their concentration off of the goal where they're supposed to be going. And the next thing you know, they've lost their balance. And no matter how hard they try, they can't get their balance back. And that's what it sometimes feel like, feels like for you and for me. You know where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be close to God. You know where the life of blessing is. But you struggle and you lose your footing. And then you try to regain your footing and you can't regain it. You're struggling. And that's where he is. And what he's going to go on to do is he's going to go on to, to describe his struggle. We're going to see how it plays out. And it plays out in two very distinct ways. And these are the same ways that the struggle plays out in your life and mine. We're going to see the temptation of the world. And we're going to see a battle with doubt. So let's start with the temptation of the world. It will encourage you to know that far from being a superhero, this guy is a sinner. Just like you, just like me. And because he's a sinner living in a sinful world, he's tempted just like you and just like me. And what we see is his struggle with temptation, drawn away from God by the things of the world. Psalm 73, verse number three. Here's the description of temptation. He says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is just nothing more than him looking at the lives of those. They don't believe in my God. They don't worship my God. They don't, they don't understand my God. And he's looking at their lives and he's seeing in their lives what he knows is not right, what he knows is contrary to what God has said, and yet he's observing it. He's got his focus on it. And the more that he looks at it, the more he wants it. The more he's drawn away from his God to the things of the world. And what he'll go on to do in the next few verses is give some specific examples. What is it that I'm seeing that is so attractive to me? What is it that's drawing me away? And you, if you, as we go through this, see if you can't relate. You want to be close to God, but you struggle. You're pulled away. How are we pulled away? It starts in verses 4 and 5. This is the first example. He says, 73 verses 4 and 5, For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. There's a lot we could say about these verses, but if we gave a simple summary statement, what is tempting him here? It is the temptation of the superficial kind of life. 
he's observing these people, and notice he says, he says they have no bands in their death. They, they live with so much confidence, so much, they live so carefree, it doesn't look like they're worried about anything. He's seeing the outside. He talks about there's no bands in their death. This is best understood as a reference to their physical appearance. So he's got his eyes on these people, and he's not looking at the eternal things. He's looking at the physical things, the material things, the temporal things, the things that won't last. That's what he's got his focus on. And it's the stuff that people say makes life successful and makes life happy. It's the money, and it's the fame, and it's the power, and it's the influence. Those are the things he's got focused on. And what does he do? He convinces himself. He says, they don't have problems like me. They don't have troubles like me. They've got the stuff that you need to have a happy life. And so because that, that stuff, I mean, they have problems, but not like my problems. Life is so much easier for them because they've got these superficial things. And we know that that's not true. Anybody that's lived long enough on this earth knows it doesn't matter how much money you've got, stuff you've got, what your name is, who knows who you are. There is not satisfaction and fulfillment in the things of the world. They're temporal. They pass away. But he's got his eyes on these things and he starts wanting these things. He can't look past the surface and he's tempted by these things. He wants these things. And he's deceived himself into believing that that's where true happiness and joy is. Is that where you are today? Are you being tempted, drawn away from God by the superficial things of this world? And can I say, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong with being famous. There's nothing wrong with having power and influence. Good things become bad things when they become God things. And when you allow those things to be what you live for, it's a God that cannot satisfy. And you cannot allow those things to consume you. There is one who deserves all of our worship and honor and praise, and that's Jesus. He's drawn away from God. There's the superficial life. What else, though? Something else that tempts him. Psalm 73, we keep reading, verses 6 through 8, the Bible says this, Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They speak corrupt. They are corrupt and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Here, he's tempted, drawn away from God by the selfish life. He said, you know, I'm looking at these people and they do what they want to who they want. They look out for themselves. And I know the kind of life my God would have me to live but I think I should start looking out for me. Pride, I'm an abomination, the Bible says, thinking so much of yourself. And yet the Bible says they wear it like a chain. They want people to see it. I am proud and I want everybody to know. When it says they wear violence like a garment, they are willing to justify the abuse and misuse of people. They'll take advantage. They'll knock people down. They'll do whatever they have to do to get ahead because for them, it's about their agenda. He says, I... They speak lawfully about oppression. Who brags about hurting people? Who brags about taking care of people, uh, taking advantage of people? Selfish people do. And he says, I'm looking at this, and that's how they're living. They're looking out for number one. They're focused on themselves. And I think I want to do that. I think I like that. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, I don't think I'm tempted to that. I mean, that that sounds like a supervillain. And you say, Pastor Matt, I mean, I struggle in my walk with God, but I don't know that I'm looking to turn over to a life of crime or something, right? But it's important to understand something. The temptation to selfishness is very subtle in our lives. No, you may not become really powerful and take advantage of a bunch of people, but you might be married 
and your marriage is struggling, and you know what God says, what, what he wants for you as a, a wife or a, a husband, but you think, you know what, maybe, maybe it's time I start looking out for me. The temptation to be selfish. You know what God says about how to treat people, how to love people, how to forgive people, but you know what? Been there, done that, not interested in it anymore. I think I need to start looking out for me. The temptation to be selfish and self-centered. What kind of life does Jesus call us as his followers to? It's radical. A life of service and sacrifice and selflessness where we love our enemies, where we do good to those who sin against us. That's the kind of life he calls us to live. Nothing like this kind of life where it's all about me. But we're drawn away. Because we look around and we see, man, people are living for themselves and it seems to be working out all right. And here I am trying to live for others and I get nothing but taken advantage of. Tempted. Drawn away. There's a superficial life. And there's a selfish life. He's drawn away from God. What about the self-sufficient life? Psalm 73, we keep reading verses 9 Through 11, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues walketh through the earth. Therefore, his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? This is nothing more than the rebellion of humanity on full display. He says, they don't believe in my God. They don't worship my God. They don't obey my God. And not only that, they make fun of the idea that there's a God in heaven who sees and who knows, who has some say in my life. They mock it and they ridicule it because they don't want to submit to God's authority. And that's the problem for all humanity is we don't want to submit to God's authority. We want to be our own God. We want to, we want to say, uh, we want to do what we want to do. We want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. And he's looking around and he's like, I've submitted to God. I've humbled myself to him. And that doesn't seem to have worked. So maybe it's time that I start calling the shots. Maybe it's time that I start setting the agenda. Maybe it's time that I stop praying, Lord, what would you have me to do? Thy will be done. And start saying, my will be done. The selfish life. The self-sufficient life. And for some, you've tried God's way. Now you're thinking about trying it your way. I'm being drawn away. Drawn away from God. There's temptation. Maybe you're there. But what about where temptation leads what it creates, what it manifests in our lives. The Bible says in Psalm 73, 12, there's this transition, right? He's given us all these examples, but then he steps back and in verse number 12, he says, behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. So it's almost like he was standing on the edge. He was looking over all this stuff and he's, I think I want that and I think I want that and I think I want that. And he's being drawn away from God. And it's after he does all that that he steps back and said, look at all this. Look at all this prosperity. Look at how things are working out for them. Look how good that life is. These are the ones that increase. They get all the stuff. They have all the fun. And so then he turns his attention from what he's observing to his own life. And inside there's this battle raging. It's a battle with doubt. He starts to question everything. There's the temptation of the world. But what happens next? There's a battle with doubt. I start to question everything that I thought I knew. His thinking's been so warped. He's so, he has so convinced himself of a lie. Here's what's happening in his life. Psalm 73, we keep reading verses 13 through 16. Verily, surely, truly, without question, verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. 
He says, you know what? I've done it God's way and I've wasted my time. I've done, I've done it God's way and it hasn't worked. I've washed my hands in vain. I have wasted my time. He's battling with doubt. He's questioning everything. He's struggling. Have you been there? Are you there right now? He's struggling. And what does he say? How does he say he knows this? He says, it's because I'm so, I'm so restless. I'm chasing every morning. I'm plagued every morning. I have this restlessness. Is not the, the devil and the evil that's at work in this world so subtle? The restlessness of our hearts is because of the sinfulness and brokenness of this world. It's not God. God doesn't put that there. Friends, God wants to take that away. Amen. The restlessness that we feel. And he says, I feel all restless and I don't have any peace. And it's because of the sin and the brokenness of the world. Not because of his God, but he gets confused and he starts to say, you know what? I think the problem is all this obedience and all this faithfulness and all this worship. I've been wasting my time. For some of you, you've reached that point. You're questioning God's way. Before we give some examples to hopefully encourage and challenge, let me say this. It is never, it is never a waste to do it God's way. Amen. It's never wrong to do it God's way. Wherever you're at and whatever you're going through, whatever your struggle looks like, don't give up. Don't give in. God's way is the best way. Stay faithful to him. Stay close to him. You won't regret it. It's not in vain. But some of you, you say, I know what God says about forgiveness, but I've been hurt too many times, and I think I'm done. Don't give up. Don't quit. Be faithful to God. Amen. There's some young people in this room, and this is... This isn't just reserved for the young people, but I have a burden for those that are young. You college kids, high school kids, you're here. What God says about sexuality and relationships and what family looks like and what marriage is all about, it's all opposite of what's celebrated and promoted in our culture. And some of you are trying, but you say, Pastor Matt, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth the ridicule. I don't know if it's worth the trouble. I don't know if it's worth, and some of you are trying, but it's hard and you're struggling. And can I say to you this morning, don't give up. Don't quit. God's way is the best way. Amen. And even for some of you, you said, well, I've already kind of made a mess of things. God is a master at taking messes and making them work. God can take whatever you've got and he can use it. Don't get discouraged. Don't quit. Amen. Some of you are really questioning this. Say, Pastor Matt, I love church and I love, I love the people, but you know, I've had some bad experiences and I just wonder, I just wonder about all this here. Don't give up. Don't quit. You need God's people. You need the assembly. You need the strength and the, and the encouragement that comes from his word. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever you're stepping back and saying, I don't know, I don't think it's going to work, whatever it is, don't give up, don't quit, keep doing it God's way. You won't regret it. Amen. Now there's something here that's interesting. Something that he says, as he's talking about his doubt, something that's very personal for me. I want to read these verses again, verses 15 and 16. He says, If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. And when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. You know what he's saying? He's like, I am struggling. I'm being drawn away. I have all these doubts and these questions. And you know, on top of it all, I feel super guilty. When I thought to know, that when I, if, I, if I say it, if I say it out loud, I'm going to feel guilty. I'm going to feel bad like I'm doing something wrong. You want to know why? Because I grew up in hearing the stories and I grew up singing about the stories and I know about my God who's good and faithful, but that's not how I feel right now. That's not what I'm experiencing right now. I'm struggling. But if I, if I were just honest about how I feel, I mean, it makes me feel guilty just to think about saying it. And for some of you, that's where you are. 
You grew up in church. You went to church. You were taught the Bible. But life and the brokenness of this world has done a number on you. And you feel bad because you struggle with doubt. Can I tell you something? That wherever you're at, God sees you. And he loves you in your frustration and in your doubts and in your questions. And wherever it is that life, this journey has brought you to, he sees you. And I can tell you that no matter what you're going through, no matter what the questions are, he will receive you like a loving heavenly father. And oh, that the church would be a place where we could be honest about the struggle. When people come to church, they ought to be able to say, I'm struggling without fear that it's going to be used against them, without fear that it's going to get around. The church ought to be a place where we can be honest about the struggle. And if you're here and you say, Pastor Matt, sometimes I wonder what's going to happen if I'm just real. I can tell you this, while I can't be certain about what people will do, I can know. I do know what my God will do. He will love you and he will forgive you and he will meet you right where you are. Don't give up. Because in the struggle, he says, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen, but I surrender. I'm struggling, but I surrender. And to draw near to God is to recognize that we are going to deal with sin, that we're going to deal with doubt, but there is a God who loves us and will receive us no matter where we've been or what's happened in our lives. There's the struggle, but there's the surrender. We, we see it when things change. Verse number 17, we keep reading, the Bible says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. He got back to the place of worship. He got back to the place of God's presence. He got back to where the noise was, was drowned out. He got back to where he could focus his attention. And when he did, he found a heavenly father that welcomed him back into his presence. Amen. And once he got there, and once he got on his knees, and once he began to worship, and once he got uh, back to a place of surrender, God began to work in his life. What does the surrender look like? What does it look like to struggle but to surrender, to give it to God? Three ways we see this surrender play out in his life. First, we acknowledge God's authority. Asaph is reminded of something. He's looked at all of it. He's been tempted by it. He's been drawn to it. But when he gets alone with God, he remembers. God is the supreme and sovereign ruler of this universe. And he is the final judge. And sin and wickedness and righteousness will be judged. No matter how I'm tempted... By the things of this world, I have to remember that they will not withstand the judgment of God. How does he describe it? It starts in verse 18 and down to verse number 20. Again, we just keep reading. What a story, huh? Different than what we were expecting. The Bible says in verse 18, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. He says, I got back into the presence of God and I was reminded, he's in control. I'm tempted with the things of this world, but the things of this world will not withstand the judgment of God. They are fleeting, they're, they're passing 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's laid up in treasure, laid up in heaven will survive. And so I don't need the things of this world. I hold loosely to the things of this world because they will pass away. You're going to be tempted. You're going to have the, your, your, your uh, allegiance is tested. You're going to be pulled. But in the end, we have to remember that God is sovereign over everything and he will judge. Do you notice how he says he set them in slippery places the same way he described his own struggle? He's now starting to see it clearly. Yeah, I have a hard time. But ultimately, the rock on which I stand is the only firm foundation. And every other ground is sinking sand. Nothing else is going to do for me what God can do for me. And one day, he's going to set things right. Sometimes it's hard. Because we look around at the pervasiveness of sin. We look around at uh, the uh, uh, evil goes unpunished. Injustice reigns. And we ask ourselves, what's going to happen? The Bible says that the judgment of God on sin and unrighteousness is like desolation as in a moment. You know what that means? It's certain. And it's comprehensive. There's nothing that will, there's nothing that will escape the judgment of God. There's two things that we can do with that. Number one, with all the sin and brokenness in the world, I can accept my responsibility to be a witness for Christ and to share the gospel because you know what? Sin is pervasive, but I'm so thankful for how the gospel is still changing people's lives. See, it's not hopeless. Jesus rules and reigns, and he's still changing people's lives. Some of you are here today, and it's only been in the last few months that you gave your life to Jesus, and he's slowly beginning to change you and transform you. Aren't you thankful that the gospel has the power to have victory over sin? Aren't you thankful that Jesus is still changing lives? That's the work that he wants to do. And so when I remind myself God is in control, I won't want the things of this world, but I don't need the things of this world because I have a God who's in control. Righteousness and godliness and faithfulness will be rewarded. Sin and wickedness will be judged. The same words, same kind of language that Jesus used when he was telling his disciples, this is how the end of the world is going to look. When I come again, this is what's going to happen. Judgment will rain down. And for me, I need to be serious about what God has called me to do, to try to see as many people come to faith as possible. But then you say, but there's still, there's still the overwhelming feeling that it's just so great that I can't do anything about it. There's still the overwhelming feeling that there's so much sin and so much injustice. And have you ever had that moment where you just step back and you look, and is there anyone who can do anything about this? There is one who can. And he's coming again. And he'll set what's wrong right. And so I can be faithful to him. Because I have a God who's in control. There's something about these verses that we read. One that's interesting. I want to read it again. It's, it should get our attention. The Bible says, we read a minute ago in verse 20. It says, as a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. That doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like it should be in this spot. At least not the sleeping God part. That feels like it should be in the struggle part. What kind of good and faithful God goes to sleep on the job? Have you ever felt that way? Where is God? Is he asleep? What's happening in my life? Is God indifferent to what's happening in my life? But this is the surrender part. This is the good part. What's he talking about? He said, God's asleep. No, not God's not, God's not asleep. We feel like things are out of control, but everything happens in accordance with his will. It seems to us like it comes out of nowhere. It doesn't come out of nowhere for God. It seems to us like it just drops out of the sky. It doesn't drop out of the sky with God. I can tell you that God is in control. Even when things feel like it's out of control, it's under control because God is in control. Amen. Jesus got onto a boat with his disciples and they started traveling to the other side and he took a nap. A godly thing to do, right? 
He took a nap. And then a storm arose. And he slept through the storm. And finally the disciples woke him up and said, don't you care? Don't you care? And he calmed the storm. Jesus was asleep, but he knew exactly what was going on. Because he's God. And guess what? If they had just put their faith in their Savior who was in the boat, it would have worked out just fine. Jesus looks at him and says, you have a little faith. And Pastor Tony had been preaching through Forward by Faith. And one of the things that he taught was it wasn't Jesus was saying, hey, listen, guys, little faith, you need to pick it up here. You need to pick it up. You need to, you need to take it up a notch. No, you want to know why they had little faith? Because they put their faith in their little selves. The reason their faith was little was because they looked around, perceived based on their understanding, we're in a bad situation, it's not going to work out. Their faith was little because their faith was in themselves. If they had trusted their Savior, it would have been great faith because it would have been faith in a great Savior. You don't need to power up. You don't need to level up. You need to trust Jesus because he's a great Savior. He has exactly what you need and he doesn't fall asleep at the wheel. When we acknowledge God's authority, when we just remind ourselves, he's got this. He has it under control. We don't think we have it under control. All the stuff in this world, if you're here and you are being tempted by the things of this world, I understand. You're a sinner. You have a flesh. But can I beg you, the things of this world will not satisfy you. Give your life to Jesus. Don't be drawn away by the things of this world. Come to Christ. Come to the Lord. If you're a believer and you're struggling, say no to sin. Some of you need to confess some sin, repent of some sin, forsake some sin. You've been dabbling with it, trying to find what only you can find in your Savior. Let him be the one who meets your needs. We acknowledge his authority. But what else do we do? We humble ourselves. He said, humble yourself. We surrender ourselves to God. We just give it all over to him. Psalm 73 we keep reading. Verses 21 through 24, he said, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reign. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me into glory. You know, the closer you get to God, the more humble you'll be. Because the more you see him for who he is, and you see yourself for who you are. The closer you get to God, the humbler you'll be. How do I know if I'm drawing near to God? Are you humble? Are you gracious? Are you forgiving? Are you merciful? Because that's what somebody who's close to God will do. The closer we get to God. Do you see how all of a sudden he's got the spotlight on himself? He says, I was a beast. I mean, some of you read this. I was foolish. I was ignorant. And you say, I can relate to that. He said, I was acting like a wild person. I don't know what was going on. I look back on it now. I was a crazy person. That's the influence of sin in our flesh and our lives. And some of you have been there and you think, what's God going to do with that? He'll forgive you. He'll love you. It was amazing. He says, I'm continually with thee. Thou hast holding me by thy right hand. Isn't that grace? Isn't that grace? He just read all the nonsense he was doing. And he says, but I, you never let me go because that's grace. God's people ought to be humble people. God's people ought to be humble people. How can we who've received such grace and mercy go out into the world and be so mean? May God humble us. To get close to God, to draw near to God, to surrender is to acknowledge his authority and it is to humble yourself before an almighty God who is holy and I see myself for who I am and it brings me to my knees, it brings me to the end of myself. I know what I need and what I need is him. And then we commit to a life of worship. So he surrendered. He struggled, but he surrendered. Guess what? We are back where we started. 
And when we read the verses at the beginning, it was easy to read those and think, wow, this guy's just killing it. But let's read it again. We know what his story is. We know where he's been. The Bible says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord, that I may declare all thy works. There's no misunderstanding it now. Are these the proud words of a proud person? No. This is the prayer of praise and thanksgiving of a man who has experienced the goodness and faithfulness of God in his life. These aren't, this isn't the bragging. This is a guy who knows what it means to struggle. He says, whom have I in heaven beside thee? He literally looked at everything. He said, you're my only desire. After he was drawn away so much, after he got his eyes on so much in the world, but who do I have on earth that I desire beside thee? This is because he is now a person who has tried it and he has reminded himself that there is only one who can fulfill the longing of my soul. And that's God. There's only one that can, can do for me what my soul needs and that's God. Whom have I on earth to desire beside thee? And for some of you, you're trying this and you're trying that. And can I tell you, you can go through those experiences or you can turn to the one who will meet the heart's desire like only he can. He said, who do I have to desire but you? It's because he'd been there and he knew what it was like to trust in the temporal things of the world. He says, my heart and my flesh faileth. This isn't, this isn't false humility. This is a guy who literally had been on his back looking up thinking there's no way I can fall any further. My strength and my heart faileth but what? But God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. This is a guy who had literally been at the bottom of the barrel and he had experienced what it was like for God to reach down and pull him up and love him and forgive him. Uh, This isn't just false uh, humility. This is the words of somebody who knows, I really do fail. I really do fall short. But my God does not. And he's got me. When he says, I understand what's going to happen to those who don't believe, he doesn't say this with pride. He doesn't say this with glee. He said, I know what that path leads to. It breaks my heart that there are those who go that way. And so I'm going to get close to God. Why? So I can declare his wonderful works. So that I can tell other people, don't go that way. It's not worth it. It's not where you want to be. The best place for you to be is near to God. The best place for you to be is close to God. To God, he is committing himself to a life of worship. He's, listen, he's struggling, but he's surrendering. And that's what some of you need to do today. You're struggling, but you just need to surrender. You just need to remind yourself he's in control. You need to remind yourself that he's God. I'm not. Humble yourself before him and let that humility uh, manifest itself in the way that you treat others and then just commit. I'm just going to keep doing what I know he wants me to do. I'm going to get into his presence and I'm going to worship him and I'm going to praise him. When you read these verses, it doesn't sound like somebody that's got it all together. It, It sounds like somebody who's got a good God and who's thankful for that good God. And for some today, 
That is where you need to be. 2024, another year ahead of us. I don't know what you're going to do. I hope you do great things. I don't know what you're going to accomplish. I hope it's a year of blessing. I hope you experience some victories in your life. But if there's one thing you can do, draw near to God. Get close to him. Hold loosely to the things of this world. Say no to the sin and temptation. Say yes to his way. Some of you are discouraged, and I understand. Take heart. Some of you are doubting. God's not afraid of your doubts. Bring them to him. You're struggling, but you can surrender.